So what I'm here to talk to you about tonight is the Dharma, which is uh, everything. including the impermanence of binder clips. So actually in my uh, life, I spent uh, a bunch of time in monasteries and retreat centers practicing intensively and then also have spent more time than that now um, living in the city and having a job and moving around and traffic and muni and this and that. So I, I really feel like it's really helpful for those of us who live regular urban lives uh, to make everything practice. So every now and then something strikes me as a topic for this kind of reflection. And today I want to talk to you about the Dharma of sports. So I'm wondering uh, how many people here have uh, any interest in this topic? <laughs> how many people here have followed any kind of sports? ever in your life, or even now, perhaps even the World Cup, or are athletes in some way yourself. Okay, how many people have no interest in this topic and now currently wish that they could leave the room? And, uh, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm basically going to talk about the Dharma. So what I'm talking about will be hopefully applicable, um, even though it may be through a lens which you may or not may not directly uh, relate to. So for myself, I've been an athlete all my life, and um, in high school and college, was pretty competitive athlete and mostly uh, kind of field team sports, field hockey, lacrosse. I played some soccer, rugby, different things um, like that. Uh, and then also have become more of a sports fan too, of uh, watching different teams and uh, kind of going ups and downs with that. So now uh, many of you are aware the World Cup soccer tournament is going on now, which will last for quite some time. So. Um, it's a good thing for those who are soccer fans and condolences to those who are not, who will be hearing about that a lot. Uh, so I thought I'd reflect a little bit about that, some of the aspects of, of sport, uh, which are, are really actually, I think sport is a metaphor for life as well in many different ways. So one is I'd like to talk about the, the three characteristics. So this is a Buddhist teaching about characteristics of existence uh, that you can find in any kind of phenomenon, in any kind of uh, field, in any kind of area. And the Buddha talked about these as really helpful uh, aspects for us to pay attention to. In some ways as a kind of a toolkit for unpicking reality. So for unpicking the way that we usually relate to ourselves and to the world around us. Uh, in ways that are erroneous. So understanding, for example, the first of these is that uh, everything is impermanent, so that there is constant change. So even as we sat here for this period of time during the meditation, uh, if you pay attention, what you notice is a constant change of experience. So different thoughts going through your mind, uh, different emotions, right, different body sensations, and so on. Right? And nothing stays the same. So no sounds no sights, no smells, no tastes, no touch, no phenomenon at all. So there's several different significant implications to this. And this is not just true when you're sitting meditation, of course. When you're sitting meditation, you're paying attention to it. This is actually true of all of life, is that it's a flow of experience in this way. Right? So one is that there's actually nothing solid in the world. 
So everything is in a constant state of flow and flux and kind of shifting kaleidoscopically uh, in our experience. So there's actually nowhere to stand permanently. There's nowhere to find a solid refuge in experiential reality. So in objects that we can experience with our eyes, nose, tongue, body, ears, and even with the mind. So that's a pretty serious thing to uh, allege, that there's no permanent security in this world. But that's actually one of the uh, even uh, intellectually sound conclusions you can draw if you actually understand that everything is always constantly in flux. So relatedly also, nothing is solid. So we usually relate to people, to things, as if they are solid. But they are actually not. And we ourselves are actually not. So this is the second of these characteristics, anatta, or this lack of a solid, independent, separate self. A corollary to this is actually about interconnection. So because there's not one solid, separate, independent self to anything, Anything is really a flow of experience that has been influenced by a myriad of other things. So anything that's here now is the momentary product of a variety of different causes and conditions that's here, in this moment, in this form, and then off again, churning away. So bring it back again to sports. Uh, I recently went to the um, Oakland A's game. Uh, one of my cousins had a birthday and wanted us to go to the watch the A's-Yankees game, because he's a New York Yankees fan. Uh, So we went, and the last time I'd gone to an Oakland A's game was um, some years ago, um, so many years ago that it was before they became good again. So the Oakland A's were really bad, and um, uh, meaning they were losing a lot. And so there was, like, almost nobody in the stadium the last time I went to an Oakland A's game. Uh, I think it was towards the end of the season or something, and I had uh, another relative in town, I thought, oh, I'll take... We'll go to this baseball game. A friend had tickets from her job or something. And the stadium was extremely empty. In fact, we were kind of lonely in our section. We went looking for others, to migrated to, to find other people. Right? But so now I turned up, and actually the A's have been doing quite well. And um, the stadium was full. The game was sold out. Uh, so it's a very different environment there. Um, but also I noticed that like, a lot of the team players, I didn't recognize who they were. So the team has had a lot of turnover, too. So here we have this concept of a team, you know, whether it's the San Francisco Giants, the Oakland A's, or even the U.S. national team. You know, it's a concept. And then within that concept, there are different entities that show up at different times, right? Uh, and these days in professional sports, it's extremely variable, like who shows up at any time. There's constantly trades being made, and there's not even a sort of identity reason why people are there, you know? It's not like those people grew up in Oakland or went to high school in Oakland or anything. You know, they're just traded and paid to play now for this team. So there is this impermanence of the team. And that idea of a team is sort of a concept, you could say. You know, a concept of constant change. So if you actually understand it like that, it's fine. You don't necessarily need to suffer because of that. But actually, usually, we don't. And maybe with the A's or with sports teams, you kind of get that. But when we get down to the level of things that we care about a lot, right? Some of you might care about the Oakland A's a lot and understand that you can suffer from the changes that happen within that. 
but let's take, for example, your own physical body. So your own physical body is actually a concept. It's a temporary experience, organic phenomenon that's here, but actually has been in constant flux and change from the moment of your birth. So everything in your body has actually changed over the course of your life. All of the cells have regenerated, the hair, the nails, the blood. We drink water that replenishes the fluids in our system. So we can have this idea of our physical body as this entity, uh, as something that we identify with and that moves through space, but it's actually not a thing. So I'll read you a little passage from an article that illustrates this in a scientific way. This is uh, called, Your Body is Younger Than You Think. Is how we read this one before here? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. So um, this is basically a scientific study uh, about the body. So it says, whatever your age, your body is many years younger. So this could be good news to some people, right? Uh, In fact, even if you're middle-aged, most of you may be just 10 years old or less. The body's tissues are under constant renewal, uh, and this has been underlined by a new method of estimating the age of body cells. Its inventor believes the average age of all the cells in an adult's, adult's body may not turn out to be as young as 7 to 10 years. Although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a stage of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by its cells. The cells lining the stomach, as mentioned, last only five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the body's circulatory system, last for only 120 days. That's about four months or so on average before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis, or the surface of the skin, is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this quick replacement is that this is the body's saran wrap and it can be easily damaged by scratching solvents and wear and tear. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass a person's lips, its life on the chemical warfare front is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but still are far from permanent. Even the bones endure a nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone dissolving and bone rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So we experience the body in a certain way and we think of it as solid, but it's really not. Some aspects we get hair grows and falls out and you have to get it cut and fingernails. But even the things that we think are permanent are really not permanent. So what's the implication of that? One is that if we understand it in that way, we can live in harmony with that and not have to suffer so much. We cannot be identified with the body as some solid permanent entity of who we are any more than a plant or this rug or some other entity 
that's uh, in a constant state of flux like that. So onto this um, interconnectedness thing. So with the body, too, you know, described a little bit in this article, the kinds of things that affect your body. So getting scratched or the solvent or what you eat, you know, that kind of thing. So we'll take this, can take this to a larger scale also, you know, this idea of interconnection. So uh, you could reflect on this, you know, in kind of a cellular way, but also in a more macro way. And uh, one of the reflections uh, I give you is that, so one of the reasons that I'm here with you today is because of the uh, Russian satellite Sputnik. So the reason is because... Um, Sputnik was a, a satellite that the Russians put up, and it was part of the space race. So they actually beat the U.S. Some of you are probably old enough to remember this uh, and the distress this caused American system when we lost the space race. Right? I was not, but I've read about this. So because of that event, you know, the U.S. and Russia at that time were in the Cold War, were in a big battle, and then the Russians won. Uh, it caused the U.S. to re-examine some of its policies, particularly towards immigration, which previously had been uh, holding Asians out of the country. And so they changed their immigration policies to, to allow uh, Asian people with particular educational qualifications, particularly in math and science, to uh, enter the U.S. So thus, uh, my parents immigrated. And then soon after I was born, and then through all of that, I bring bring the Dharma to you here today. So thanks to Sputnik. Right. <laughs> so all these different causes and conditions are out of our control that uh, come together, that uh, are impersonal in some ways. Right? So similarly, to bring it back to sports, and the, you know, the U.S. Uh, national soccer team uh, has actually uh, many players who are, from, who are binational, bicultural. So there's actually uh, five players who are uh, of German descent also. And all those five players had fathers who were American military stationed in Germany. Uh, so they were born to German mothers. The fathers, uh, I think four out of five of them, the fathers left. One of them went with the father to U.S. for a while and then back. Uh, but then they were actually raised in Germany. And in Germany, if you're an athletic kid you're shuttled towards sports like soccer. In the U.S., you're shuttled towards sports like baseball, basketball, football. Right? In Canada, maybe it's ice hockey. So here in, uh, you know, these kids like, who are athletic kids ended up uh, learning how to play soccer really well from the time they were like three. And uh, then some of them found out later they were part American or some of them already knew. And then were able to get U.S. citizenship and actually join the U.S. national team. Now, also, they, they probably were not at the level where they could join the German national team that's actually much better than the U.S. national team. <laughs> so it's good for them. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's actually a story about this that said, you know, um, the U.S. Um, – actually, the Russian blockade of, of Berlin was probably one of the biggest influences on U.S. soccer. Okay. Historical events happening has this effect on different people including the birth of children, the way that they develop, and then there we go. It plays out in sports as well. It also turns out there's a half Icelandic and a, a half Norwegian guy also on the team. Similar kind of stories, too. So interconnection. So you can see this in these big ways. And 
then in a, a broader way, you know, there's something about these world uh, athletic events. As much as in some ways it seems very frivolous, so much money is being spent on a game to kick a ball around or something, you know. And certainly in Brazil, there's a lot of suffering in that country, and there's been a lot of critiques of how much money is spent to build giant stadiums in the middle of nowhere, and favelas destroyed, and people displaced, right? So that's all definitely a true thing to look at about the, the way it's big business, too. You know, it's a money-making enterprise, and the poor are discounted in that equation. There also is a way in which, for a moment, we get to pay attention to other countries, uh, particularly as Americans, in which we're like somewhat oblivious to that a lot of the time. Right? So the U.S. played Ghana in their first game, and um, I saw some article about this in which it was saying that the Ghanaian government actually had to buy electricity from Ivory Coast in order to keep electricity going so people could watch the game in Ghana. You know, they're... they're uh, Electricity came a lot from a particular river, the Volta River, that was very low, and so they didn't have as much electricity, and they'd ask people to turn off their freezers and air conditioners in the country during this time so that people could watch the World Cup match. And many other ways you can see this, you know, playing out, just uh, a noticing of international camaraderie or uh, rivalries, or even just paying attention to the existence of different nations. So there's a positive aspect of sport, I would say, this um, ability to connect with other people in some way. So I play also on a, a softball team now in the um, Gay and Lesbian Softball League in San Francisco. And I'm new to playing softball. Uh, so uh, I've played a lot of other kinds of sports, but not this particular one. So because of just being an athlete in general, like I'm okay at hitting the ball, but uh, I'm not very good at throwing. Uh, so that's a particular, you know, unique motion, and I've never played any sports where you have to do that. And then catching it seemed like sort of okay with, basically you put a giant leather hand on your, you know, and then something. So, uh, so I usually get a, a hit when I get up to bat. Uh, and this one time that I went up to bat, um, recently I had a... Um, I got struck out for the first time. And I'd like to tell you this story, but first I'd like to tell you the story of the Buddha and his uh, night of enlightenment. So some of you already know this story, I'm sure, of his quest for understanding, for awakening. And he went through many different phases of this, of trying to learn this, trying to learn this, and finally sat down with complete resolve that he's going to see into the nature of things. He's going to understand the mystery of life, death, suffering. So as the story goes, he sat through the watches of the night. And during this time, he was assailed by the armies of Mara. So the armies of Mara are actually uh, mental phenomenon that come through. So the first one was the armies of Mara that brought all these beautiful phenomenon to him. So all these things that he could have, worldly pleasures, if he let go of his quest for awakening. So all the beautiful tastes he could have, and sex, and uh, beautiful music, and tempting him right, to get off his seat, knock him off his seat. But the Buddha sat steady through that. Then the next watch of the night, the next army of Mara was this army of fearsome things. So all kinds of terrifying visions came to him. 
to scare him off his seat. There's the armies of Mara, of uh, violence and horror. But he was able to stay steady through that. And then the final army of Mara was actually even a sort of quiet one, but an insidious one that many of you will probably recognize. And this is the voice of self-doubt, the voice of doubt. So the voice of Mara said, Who are you to think that you can sit here and seek awakening? By what right do you have for your quest? And in this, many of the statues you can see of the Buddha, he's sitting cross-legged and he's just touching the ground like this with his hand. And his answer was just this gesture, the earth bears witness to my right to be here. The earth bears witness for my right to understand this, to know this. So it said at that moment, you know, lightning and he became fully awakened. So he dispelled these armies through seeing through them, you know, through sitting steady. And there's a way in which all of us do this every time that we sit in meditation. You know, even for this period of half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever you do, even five minutes, it's a discipline, really. It's a training. You know, it's a training in which you're saying, let me see if I can meet whatever it is that comes up in experience and keep my seat. You know, can I be present with this? Can I know this also as part of the flow of experience, of life? Whatever sights, whatever sounds, whatever thoughts, whatever body experiences. And notice, what is it that knocks you off your seat? You know, both in formal practice. And it could be something as seemingly mundane as, uh, I would rather be watching the World Cup. Right? Or, I want to go get an ice cream. Or, this is boring. Or, I really should go uh, check my email. Or maybe this is not doing anything. Maybe there's, a, there's something uh, better I could be doing. Or physical pain, knee pain. Itchiness, sleepiness, restlessness of mind, restlessness of body. So you could see these all as different armies of Mara. Like, can I keep my seat? And we get knocked over again and again, and that's part of the learning process. You know, whatever it is that knocks you out, then see if you can learn. Okay, what was that? What happened in that case? All right, next time I'll keep an eye out for that, too. So back to my softball story. So I usually get a hit here, but I went up to bat. And uh, my team, I should mention also, um, usually uh, it's in the, the D division. So there's four divisions, A, B, C, D, and we're in the lowest division of the softball league. And for most of the season, we've also been in the lowest position of that. So last place in the lowest division of the softball league, but still having a good time. You know. But so this one game, we're actually winning the game. So I got up to bat, and um, usually I look at this as sort of a concentration practice, too. So it's a concentration and awareness. It's a lot like, like a meditation, right? So I'm like there in the stance, and the pitch comes, and it seemed like it's outside. But then I hear this voice saying, like, it's a strike, it's a strike. And was, moment of doubt. And I was like, oh, swing, miss, it was outside. So I turn around, and I was like, wait, the catcher said that. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, you're not on my team. <laughs> You're not my friend. <laughs> so this is the first time I encountered this. So I, I was kind of puzzled by this. I turned to the umpire. Was that a strike? And he was like, you swung at it, so it's a strike. Right? I was like, but was it in the strike zone? He was like, you, you swung at it, it's a strike. Play ball. Like, keep going. You know? So I was like, oh, okay. Wow, I didn't know you could do this. Like, there, you know? 
So I'm, I'm new at this, so I'm used to listening to my team giving me advice, but I didn't realize there was going to be these other voices there, right? So then I was like, all right, I'm going to do the opposite of what this voice says, you know. So up to bat, again, waiting, right? Then again, it's a strike, it's a strike. So then I, I didn't swing, but it was a strike. <laughs> so actually in this, uh, in this league, you start out with one ball and one strike, so two strikes mean you're out. So I went back to my... Um, the bench and my teammates were like, what happened? Why are you back here? Like, what's going on? I was like, I struck out. And they were like, what happened? And I said, well, is, is it a thing you can lie in this game? Is that part of this? Like, you know. <laughs> and they were like, well, yeah, you know, they, they try and get you to mess with your mind and stuff like that. And I was like, well, why hasn't it happened before? And they said, we always lost in our own before. So, you know. <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh, Okay. It's the voice of Mara. This is Mara, right? You know, Mara at the, in the catcher's mask. So I was like, good. You know, I, it made me excited to get up to bat again. I was like, give me another chance. This is great. I know how to be with this, like guarding the sense doors, you know, being present. And, and it's interesting, you know, in the first time, I wasn't ready for that. You know, I wasn't aware, like, oh, this voice might come, right? I was ready to trust whatever thought arose, whatever arose in the sound. So that was a, a mistake, right? So I learned from that. But then the next mistake in the next pitch, I decided to make a rule. Like, I'm not going to listen to what this is. And the truth is what serves you in life and in general is to trust awareness. You know, when you develop the qualities of of collectedness and awareness, and then you can respond in the moment, you know, to trust your intuition. Um, That's the best way to be. Because making up a rule this way or that doesn't really work in life, you know, as I learned from my second strike, too. So then, you know, my attitude about this was like, oh, this is really interesting now. You know, I didn't expect this, this thing to happen, but like, that's, that's great. Like, put me in again, coach. I want to see. I want to I try again, you know. And this is a helpful attitude for us to have around the things that knock us off of our seat, you know, the things that make you strike out. And whatever that is for you, you know, whatever those aspects are in your life, not just in meditation practice, but whether it's um, around um, training with precepts or... Uh, particular mind states that occupy you or knock you out. Um, you know, get really interested in that. Get interested in that moment of what's happening there. You know, get interested in what happens in the body, in the mind, right? And then learn from that. You know, learn from that as best you can, and then resolve the next time to try to do better. Right? And maybe sometimes you strike out, you know, a hundred times before you can master one particular pitch. And that's okay. As part of the learning process of our life. And then learning to trust awareness more and more. Trust this sense of knowing. Uh, trust our collectedness. Trust intuition. So that can also develop as we uh, continue along in our practice and our path in this way. So I could go on about sports more and more, but I think I'll pause now since we're getting towards the end of the time here. And uh, I'll leave it open if anyone has any questions, um, any comments you want to make, too. Uh, but I'll say, you know, that we can approach our life as actually a play in this way. Uh, and then, you know, noticing what's there, learning from it, and then uh, getting interested in how I can do things differently the next time, too. So this makes a very different adventure of life than if we get beaten down by that. So one more comment about sport is that the helpful thing about sport, sometimes people say, like, oh, if you're a Dharma person, like, um, shouldn't you be very non-competitive and, you know, all this stuff? And 
Actually, oftentimes people are surprised to hear that I play sports since I'm a, so a like, Buddhist teacher. You know, they think, oh, you probably do Tai Chi and yoga and like, <laughs> like calm, nice things and stuff. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's completely possi- possible to play sports and to play games and actually engage in life and to be competitive. As long as both you play fairly and play, comp- play, play with compassion right, for others. And also as long as you realize that it's just a game. So that's the key thing, too, is to realize what's actually real. You know, what's actually real, what's actually important. So when you play with this spirit, then you can actually also enjoy even when other people do good things. When other people make amazing plays, you can appreciate the athleticism in that. You know, you can appreciate the skill in that. And then also you can appreciate when you do something or your team does something well. So the same thing with life also. You know, it's possible to engage fully, but also to know what are the aspects of the game. You know, what's real and what's not real. And to play fairly with compassion and kindness. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is about wrestling with competitiveness. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think with any, um, any one term that we come up with, like competitiveness or even if it's like anger or whatever, you know, it's really feeling into like, what is the nature of that? Like, what is, what is that about? What does that feel like? And I would say that competitiveness can come on a spectrum, you know, and one part of the spectrum can include like aggression, you know, aggression, hatred, some sense of separation, me and other, and um, wanting to harm, you know, there's sort of some quality of it like that. But there's another aspect of competitiveness that can be some aspect of being really engaged, you know, like fully alive and engaged and caring about what's happening, but also with a certain amount of detachment. So basically I'm describing some form of equanimity, you know, with some passion and caring in there. And it's, it's unusual in sports for that to be there, but it's very possible for that to be there. And actually in, in many sports, um, people, one of the things people love about sports, and I have had these experiences myself, is those moments of, you know, complete flow when there's just a feeling everything together. You know, there's a togetherness of it all. And that's one of the reasons people continue to train and play is like for those moments, you know, of uh, interconnection, of like, you know, people describe, and I've had this too, it's like the ball is just hanging there. You know, there's nothing else to do. It's like everything else is still, you know. Um, so I say this even in the, the, the World Cup, even the U.S. Ghana game that I watched, you know, there was certain times in which uh, it seemed like, in general, the teams were had a friendly attitude towards each other. But as the game went on, uh, sometimes there was some heat-of-the-moment thing. So there was one particular episode where one of the Ghanaian players um, kind of went for the ball, and he kind of tripped up the U.S. player. But then as the U.S. player went down, he knocked him in the head with his leg. Right? So the U.S. player's down, and then the Ghanaian player got up, and he was mad about this, that he got knocked in the head. And he was kind of like, you know, <laughs> like very aggressive way. And it's very sweet. The American player in this case was, um, he was one of these guys, these German, uh, half German guys. He was like so sweet the way he was touching him. It was clear he was like, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. And in this very tender way that you don't usually see, uh, I don't usually see American sports people touching each other like this, sports men, you know. He was like touching him here and his head and even his face and, uh, you know, just conveying this care and like, uh, Apology, even though he also was tripped in this play. 
And they went through a couple of rounds of this where the guy, you know, the guy who was mad was like, rah, 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 and he was like, oh, oh, oh. and then he was like, you know, rah, 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 and then, oh, oh, you know, and uh, you know, the referee is there and the, the one guy's trying to make the ref give him a foul or a car, yellow card or something. And then after about three rounds of that, they actually shook hands, like it kind of settled down. And I was like, oh, look at that. This is the also Buddhist teaching, right? Hatred will not cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. You know, this is a universal law. So it's true in soccer too, right? Because otherwise, then these guys get these grudges, and then, you know, they take it out on each other again. And Actually, in the A's game before the one that I went to, there was another case where the guy, one guy was mad at the other guy, and then he threw a pitch near him, and then the guy flung the bat at the pitcher. And, you know, it just escalates on and on, right? In, in actually a very childish way, too. Uh, so I think it's, it's possible to be competitive, but without that aggressiveness. And sometimes you see that even on a, even at a high level of play like that, and it's such a beautiful thing. But it's for all of us to investigate that, too. You know, if you're an athlete or even if you're not an athlete, whatever field you're in, you know, what is, what is this competitiveness about here? Like, what's the quality of it? You know, is, there, is it possible to actually compete in whatever, even in business or uh, sports or anything, uh, and to have it be, you know, people who are lawyers, there are many, like, competitive fields, right? Is it possible to do that from a spirit that's different from hating and wanting to vanquish and kill someone, you know? Minus that quality of aggression. And I would say it is, but this is kind of a koan for you to like check out, investigate in your own life, too. All right, maybe time for one more, yeah. Yeah, so the question was, uh, you know, I said that people identify themselves with their body, but it's actually in constant change. So the question is, like, what can we actually identify ourselves with, right? Like, what's actually true to identify yourself with, right? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, maybe there's one way to think about it is there's different ways to identify. So identity arises as a thought in the moment. If you look at, like, what is actually identity, right? Identity is a thought that arises in the moment. And this includes also, you're like, oh, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm uh, this, I'm that, I'm transgender, I'm, like, this ethnicity, I'm this age, right? All of those are, like, different ideas that we have about ourselves. And a lot of them are ideas that are actually not always true or not completely 100% true or fluid, right? Uh, this comes up with sports, too, right? Identifying with a team or something like that or, you know, right, like that. So the arising of identity is not necessarily a problem, like the arising of a thought of this. It's just how much we take that to be a permanent truth or not. So relatively speaking, like, yes, this body would be called Anushka as opposed to this other one, and then it's good to understand about, like, personal space and, you know, stuff like that and, like, all that. So that's on the relative level, like, yeah, identity is a useful concept. But in actuality, there's nothing, including different thoughts of identity, that we can hold on to that's actually permanently true. So there's no thing, per se, that you can identify with. But this, too, is another one to check out. It's like, oh, is there something to identify with? Is there something I can identify with that's true, that stays that way? And I would say anything that's an object that we can identify with is not actually that. But check it out and see. (laughs) <laughs> What's a non-object? 
that too will be something for you to observe. Um, All right, so this is a very good topic, but unfortunately we also are are down to 9 o'clock, so I should let you go. So uh, practice with this in your life. Check out about a sense of competitiveness. Check out your relationship to uh, the three characteristics, if that interests you. Whatever it is from this that grabbed you as something, even that you're like, I don't really believe that's true. I don't think that's true. Or... uh, I wonder if that's true, or maybe that's true for other people, but not for me, right? Um, check it out in your experience this week and see, right? How does this play out? Uh, and then you can see. You can report back to Howie next time if he's back. So for those of you who are sports fans, um, enjoy the World Cup. For those of you who are not, my condolences as it will drag on, and people will talk about it even in Dharma talks and places you don't expect it to turn up, right? Uh, so thank you for your attention to the Dharma. Um, I have also a group that meets on Monday nights now in uh, CIS, which is at Mission and 10th Street. So all of you are welcome to come in addition to this group if you want to take yourself off the streets for another uh, night of the week, Monday nights, uh, 7 to 9. And I left a piece of paper. You could sign up on an email list if you want to as well. Um, thank you in advance also for the donations that you give. That really uh, appreciate that. It allows me to continue teaching the Dharma and also allows this group to continue with the space and everything like that. Thank you.